there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On Sunday, October 13, 2002, 70-year-old Dr. Felix Polk took a road trip with his two sons, Adam and Gabriel. They left their house in Berkeley just after 5 a.m. to drive 19-year-old Adam back to UCLA, where he was a sophomore. They spent the drive listening to classic rock and discussing the prospects of the Giants' postseason. Felix thought they would make the World Series. The entire drive down the I-5, an elephant sat in the back seat. Felix and his wife, Susan, went through a messy divorce throughout 2002. And Susan wasn't taking it well, lashing out at Felix. She'd mused to 15-year-old Gabriel about so many different ways she might kill his father, like blowing his head off with a shotgun or running him down with the car, that the threats didn't even have meaning anymore. Yet Felix seemed convinced that with enough time and space, Susan would calm down. He still deeply cared for her and held on to the hope that they might eventually reunite as a family. Adam didn't say it out loud, but he thought that mindset was just as delusional as his mother's. Adam was glad to be going back to school, getting away from the ongoing saga of family drama. If he'd known what would happen between his parents that night when Felix returned home, perhaps Adam would have done more to express his concerns about his mom's mindset. Instead, he just waved as the car drove away, not knowing it was the last time he'd see his dad alive. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This week, we're continuing our discussion of Susan Polk and what led her to stab her husband to death after 20 years of marriage. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Last week, we explored Susan Polk's childhood after her parents' divorce. When she was 15, she started seeing a child's psychotherapist for anxiety. Her doctor, Felix Polk, eventually became her husband. Though he was nearly 25 years her senior, 
they connected over their love of literature and similar personalities. By all accounts, it was a happy marriage. The couple had three boys, raising them in an upper-middle-class home filled with love and creative expression. But in 1998, 41-year-old Susan underwent repressed memory therapy. It was a new technique that encouraged patients to explore for hidden traumas in their past that might explain their current anxieties. This practice has now been largely discounted. Most recovered memories were likely false, unwittingly planted by therapists' questions. But at the time, Susan remembered that when she was 16, Felix had hypnotized and raped her during one of their early sessions. It called their entire relationship into question, and soon their marriage collapsed. When Felix won custody of their 15-year-old son Gabriel in the 2002 divorce, and Susan's monthly alimony was reduced to only a third of the money she was expecting, it cemented her feelings that her ex-husband was her greatest nemesis. This week, we'll see the drastic revenge Susan took against Felix, as well as the police investigation and trial that followed. On Monday, October 14, 2002, Gabriel Polk had a normal day. He even went to school, a rarity. But he was in a good mood. Felix was taking Gabriel to a baseball game after work. After he finished with classes at 12.30 p.m., he met his mother for lunch. But when they got home afterward, Susan told her son that she needed to run more errands. He thought it was odd that she hadn't stopped while they were already out, but he didn't think too much of it. Gabriel stayed behind, worked out, then got cleaned up and waited for his dad to arrive so they could go to the baseball game. But the hours stretched on, and his father didn't come home. Susan eventually returned from her errands and made dinner. They ate around 7 p.m., mostly in silence. Gabriel's heart jumped at every passing set of headlights, but none belonged to Felix's car. By 8.30 p.m., Gabriel knew something was wrong. He asked Susan, where's dad? She told him she didn't know. Then she offered, maybe he got into an accident. Why don't you call Highway Patrol? According to journalist Carol Pogash's book on Susan Polk, Seduced by Madness, watching his mother's face that night, Gabriel was certain she was lying. Vanessa's going to take over on Susan's psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. Dr. Lillian Glass, the author of The Body Language of Liars, wrote that when people are lying, there are typically variations in the following areas. Bodily movements, facial expressions, tone of voice, and content of speech. She continued, when people are nervous, the muscles in the vocal cords might tighten up as an instinctive response to stress, leading the voice to sound very high-pitched. Gabriel watched his mother closely. Her voice was tight, high-pitched, and her eyelids fluttered when she spoke. Gabriel decided to go check the pool house, where Felix had been sleeping while Susan was in town for the week. Maybe he'd gone there instead of the main house for some reason. Uneasy, Gabriel walked to the dark pool house. When he tried the handle, the door was locked. The knot in his stomach twisted tighter. There was another door in the back, but Gabriel didn't want to creep around in the dark. Instead, 
He returned to the kitchen and again asked his mother, where's dad? Susan busied her hands with the after-dinner cleanup. She said casually, he's gone, and aren't you happy? I am. Gabriel, shocked, demanded again, where is he? Susan repeated her question, wasn't he happy? He was horrified. Calling back to her frequent threats to shoot Felix, Susan quipped, I guess I didn't have a shotgun, did I? Gabriel ran to his bedroom and called 911. But when the operator asked for the details of his emergency, he didn't know what to say. He didn't actually know what had happened. He hung up the phone and went to get a flashlight. As he passed by the living room, Susan asked where he was going. He ignored her concern and kept walking. Gabriel had to know what was behind the locked pool house door. He picked his way around to the back side of the house and entered through the sliding glass kitchen door. He scanned the dark living room with his flashlight. In the middle of the tile floor, lying face up and wearing only underwear, was his father. He wasn't moving and he was covered in blood. Gabriel fled the pool house and dialed 911 again. He told the operator his mother had killed his father and he needed help. While he was waiting for police to arrive, he hid behind the garage away from Susan. He was terrified. He couldn't believe what he'd seen. Her threats had always seemed like a joke, just mom being mom. Now she'd actually done it. She'd killed him. When police arrived, they handcuffed both Susan and Gabriel, keeping them detained until they could determine what exactly had happened in the pool house. The medical examiner reported that Felix had been stabbed to death with over 20 injuries, some of them defensive wounds on his hands. Gabriel told police he believed Susan was responsible. They quickly agreed with his assumption. When one of the officers notified Susan of Felix's death, after a moment of silence, she reportedly said, oh well, we were getting a divorce anyway. When they took her back to the station for questioning, she denied any involvement. Instead, she said they should check Felix's client list. Police pointed out that she didn't seem very upset by Felix's passing. She hadn't cried at all. Susan told them that she wasn't in love with Felix anymore but also assured them she was very, very, very upset. In her book, Body Language of Liars, Dr. Glass also noted that the content of speech can be telling when trying to determine truthfulness. For example, when someone repeats a fact or phrase several times, it can be a sign that they're trying too hard to convince you it's the truth. Susan stressed to police several times that Felix was her main source of income, Therefore, it didn't make logical sense that she would kill him. But Gabriel's testimony was more convincing. He told them about his parents' divorce and the growing level of tension between them over the last year. Susan's casual threats, the way she'd acted that night, he knew she did this. Susan was placed under arrest and charged with Felix's murder. Gabriel decided that night to cut his mother out of his life forever, refusing to speak to her and ripping up her letters without reading them. He would never forgive her for killing his father. When Adam heard about Felix's death, he quickly went into crisis management mode, 
he found a place for Gabriel to live temporarily with the parents of one of his friends, the Briners. He also took over the family finances. Living with the Briners was a big adjustment for Gabriel. Susan had never really imposed rules, expectations, or consequences in their house, allowing the boys to follow whatever whim or emotion they had. As a result, they had grown into rowdy teenagers. The middle Polk brother, Eli, had even wound up in juvenile hall for drug possession and violating the terms of his house arrest. For the first time, Adam was glad that Eli was currently incarcerated, as it was one less thing he had to deal with. This lax parenting style was what had led Gabriel to miss so much of 10th grade. He didn't get credit for any classes that year. But Marjorie Briner, a former junior high school teacher, wasn't going to let Gabriel cut class and squander his potential. Even when he screamed at her when it was time to get up for school, she held firm. She imposed a curfew and assigned him chores. Certified school counselor and parenting coach Sarah Bean said, being consistent with your rules, values, limits, and consequences is a crucial part of establishing a culture of accountability in your home. When you're not consistent in these areas, you undermine your own authority because the boundaries aren't clear. After a few months in this more consistent environment, Gabriel thrived with the added stability. He did better in school and joined the rugby team. Susan, on the other hand, had a hard time adjusting to her new routine. She chafed at the many rules and regulations imposed in jail, racking up 50 infractions in less than a year. She tried to pass the time reading books on grief and self-help, sending letters to her boys, and writing poems and short stories in her journal, many about Felix. In Seduced by Madness, Pogash described a fairy tale esque story that she wrote about her and Felix, portraying him as an old toy maker and herself as a puppet, his creation. Together, the toy maker and puppet have three sons. Two of them, representing Adam and Gabriel, are controlled by the toy maker. The middle son, Eli, was able to escape. The mother puppet was unable to follow her son to freedom. Whenever she tried to flee, the toy maker recited, Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife and couldn't keep her. So he kept her in a pumpkin shell, and there he kept her very well. Coming up, Susan Polk stands trial for her husband's murder. Now, back to the story. In October of 2002, 70-year-old Dr. Felix Polk was found stabbed to death in his pool house. His ex-wife, 45-year-old Susan Polk, was charged with his murder. She'd made threats on his life previously, unhappy with their divorce settlement. Other evidence pointed towards Susan as well. Strands of her hair were found at the murder scene, and she had taken actions to cover up Felix's death. This evidence, combined with Gabriel's testimony, made police fairly certain that Susan was responsible. When family, friends, patients, and students learned of Felix's passing, the reaction was mixed. For those unfamiliar with the deterioration of the Polk marriage, his death was a complete shock. His students in particular were stunned. But to those close to the couple, who had heard about Susan's casual threats and other increasingly delusional behavior, 
Like her belief that Felix was a CIA agent, this tragic development wasn't altogether unexpected. Several of them had advised Felix to remove himself from the situation, to file a restraining order against Susan and never let her within 50 feet again. But he'd always been reluctant. Felix had confided to a friend on October 6, 2002, a week before his death, that he worried Susan had purchased a shotgun and would try to kill him. The friend remembered that he wasn't sure how to evaluate the threat. Was Susan just a little nutty? Or was she a delusional murderer? When Felix ultimately decided not to report his concerns, the friend didn't push the matter. We typically think of male-on-female violence when we talk about domestic abuse. But this is not because female-on-male abuse is underreported. In fact, a 2008 intimate partner violence study conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice found that 72% of male victims reported their abuse to police, while only 49% of female victims reported their abuse. The study continued, when men don't report an incident to police, they usually say it's because they see it as a private or personal matter, not that they feel ashamed and embarrassed. Some male victims want to protect the partner who assaulted them, just like female victims do. Felix, still very much in love with her and not able to see her as dangerous, didn't take any drastic action. Perhaps he felt like he had enough control over the situation that he could eventually fix it. But Felix's professional mentor and close friend thought that Felix knew what would eventually happen if he stayed in contact with Susan. He considered the death a suicide. As journalist Carol Pogash relayed, the weapon wasn't the knife. It was his wife. Through her initial legal proceedings in the spring of 2003, Susan represented herself in front of the judge. She pleaded not guilty. In her initial police interviews, she had denied any involvement in Felix's death. But police found her hair at the crime scene, clutched in Felix's hand. So she now admitted to killing Felix, but alleged that it was in self-defense. According to Susan, she went to see Felix in the pool house the night he died to talk about finances related to a few rental properties they owned together. Through the course of their conversation, Felix became more and more upset. Eventually, Susan alleged, he attacked her with a paring knife from the kitchen. She was able to stun him with some pepper spray that she'd been carrying for protection and wrestled the knife away. Then she fought for her life, stabbing Felix only to keep him from turning the knife on her. Then he fell backward onto the tile floor, bleeding to death. Susan claimed that she was in such shock after the attack that after washing the blood off her hands and face, she just sat in the pool house next to Felix's body for over half an hour, waiting for someone to come arrest her. Surely one of the neighbors had heard their struggle. When no one came, Susan was presented with a different dilemma. She worried how it would look to police that she had waited so long to report Felix's death. So she decided to hide her actions. She collected the bloody paring knife and pepper spray and went back to the main house. She washed off the knife and threw the spray into the trash. She took off her bloody clothes and put them in the washing machine. Then she went upstairs and got into the shower. 
The next morning, she made breakfast for Gabriel, pretending that everything was normal. After he left for school, she drove Felix's car to the metro station parking lot, making it look like he'd taken the train as part of his usual commute. She didn't want Gabriel to be suspicious. That night, as they ate dinner, she tried to figure out what to do next. Susan said that she never intended for her son to find Felix's body. She just hadn't been able to bring herself to call the police, wanting to let Gabriel keep his peace of mind as long as possible. She wanted to protect him. Instead, the 15-year-old made a gruesome discovery. When attorney Dan Horowitz heard the details of Susan Polk's case, he immediately visited her in prison, lobbying to defend her. Horowitz was a frequent guest on Court TV and CNN, building a high-profile image that would attract high-profile clients. He had dreams of someday attaining Nancy Grace-type stardom. Susan's case was filled with salacious buzzwords, and he was hungry for the undoubtedly large amount of media coverage it would draw. He painted the image of Susan as a battered woman to the press. He described Felix as a violent monster, a vile, miserable man who imprisoned her. He alleged that the night Felix died was the summation of a long history of controlling abuse. When Susan walked into the pool house that night, she went, he said, into a death trap. Pogash reported that he even gave the press his own embellished version of the fight that night, describing a vivid scene of Felix towering over Susan, brandishing the paring knife, Susan pleading for her life. He claimed she kneed him in the groin and managed to grab the blade away from him. This was clearly a case of self-defense, and Susan had survived only by luck. Horowitz's media campaign managed to garner sympathy for Susan. Public opinion was generally in her favor when her murder trial began in earnest, after a series of delays on October 11, 2005, nearly three years to the day after Felix's death. When the judge reviewed the list of charges against Susan to the jury, she started to cry at the defense table. But Contra Costa Deputy District Attorney Tom O'Connor wasn't going to allow the jury to see Susan as a sympathetic figure. In his opening statements, he combated the claims of self-defense head-on. He alleged that this was premeditated murder. He described Felix's injuries as entirely one-sided. This was not the great battle the defense described. Susan had entered the pool house that night armed to kill. After she was done, she took multiple steps to cover her crimes. He summarized, the defendant is nothing but a cold, calculating, callous murderer. She got wind of what was happening in the divorce proceeding. She became angry and came home from Montana to take care of business. She threatened to kill Felix Polk, and that is exactly what she did. Susan fumed at the defense table throughout his monologue, taking offense to most of O'Connor's statements and hissing for her lawyer to object, getting even angrier when he refused to interject. She bristled when the judge warned her not to interrupt. When Horowitz was able to stand before the jury, he took an aggressive approach out of the gate. He wheeled a projector into the courtroom and showed them several photos from the crime scene. They saw Felix, 
covered in blood, his vacant eyes staring at the lens, close-up angles of his many stab wounds. It was an unorthodox approach, as the photos clearly shocked the jury. But Horowitz knew that would be the case. He hoped that by using them as part of his opening statements, it would dampen the effect when D.A. O'Connor presented them later in the case. He then projected an image of Susan's face taken the night of the murder. She had a one-inch purple bruise curved around her right eye. A small, dark purple circle underlined her left eye. They were marks of the vicious fight Felix and Susan had that night, struggling over the paring knife. Horowitz stressed to the jury that it could have easily been Susan's bloodied body in the crime scene photos if things had gone differently. He described the Polk household as a cult run by Felix. From the time he had entered her life when Susan was 15, he had preyed on her naivete to control her. When she tried to free herself, it made him furious, and he tried even harder to control her by claiming custody of Gabriel and limiting her financial support. To emphasize his characterization of Felix, he played a recording of his voice to the jury. It was a clip from an interview he gave as part of Enough, the grassroots organization the Polks founded in the mid-80s to advocate for the protection of children against satanic ritual abuse. They heard Felix say, My rage is omnipresent. I wake up with it every morning. And my son Adam doesn't have to be choking for me to do that. I am enraged. My fantasy, of course, is to kill them. And I'm a rather moral person. I want to kill them. It had nothing to do with the murder, nothing to do with Susan, but taken out of context, it left a distinct impression. By the end of proceedings on Friday, October 14th, the three-year anniversary of Felix's death, Horowitz was feeling confident in his defense strategy. But by the next week, Horowitz's case would be thrown completely off the rails, and he would be removed from her team entirely. Coming up, the judge declares a mistrial in Susan's case after a shocking act of violence. Now, the conclusion to the story. On Saturday, October 15, 2005, defense attorney Dan Horowitz started his day with a breakfast meeting. He was preparing for cross-examination of the state's witnesses against his client, 48-year-old Susan Polk. He felt the case couldn't be going better for him. He had already scored back-to-back appearances on Nancy Grace the previous week to discuss his defense strategy and airtime was exactly what he was looking for. His wife of 11 years, 52-year-old Pamela Vitali, was his greatest supporter. Together, they planned his future and strategized how they would make him a star through the combination of her ambition and his tenacity. As Horowitz wrapped up his workday in the late afternoon that Saturday, he realized that he hadn't heard from Pamela once since that morning. He tried to call her, but she didn't answer. It was odd, but he knew that she had plans to go to the ballet with a friend. She must have gotten caught up. Maybe they'd gone to dinner beforehand. But when he pulled into the driveway just before 6 p.m. that night and saw Pamela's white Mercedes parked in the driveway, he started to panic. 
When he got to the front door of the house, he realized it was unlocked. His anxiety ratcheted up even further. He turned the knob and entered. He found Pamela lying on the floor in a fetal position, in a pool of blood. Horowitz screamed and rushed to her side, trying to find a pulse. She had a huge gash on her head and several small cuts on her arms and abdomen. He called 911 and hysterically yelled into the receiver, help me, help me, she's dead. Oh my God, Pamela. Horowitz was instantly destroyed. Those close to him saw a marked change in his demeanor, describing him as aging overnight. His suits started to hang off him as he dropped 30 pounds in a few short weeks. He made another Nancy Grace appearance, but spent most of his airtime weeping for Pamela, a far cry from the smug attorney who typically took a tough guy attitude on her show. It was a gruesome twist in a case that was already filled with bizarre details, drawing even more media attention. Immediately, the press speculated that the two murders were related somehow, as both Felix and Pamela had been stabbed. When interviewed, Susan suggested that one of Felix's spy friends in the CIA had carried out the attack to sabotage her case. In actuality, Pamela's death was in no way connected to Felix's. Police eventually charged 16-year-old Scott Delesky for the crime. Scott lived about a mile down the road from the Horowitz's property with his mother and a dozen other or so non-relatives. It was practically a commune with no running water, no electricity, and chickens and goats roaming outside. He was allegedly bullied at school for being a nerd. Scott had long hair, dyed jet black, and typically wore all black clothing and a black trench coat, emulating Marilyn Manson's style. He wrote poems about death and drew sketches of macabre scenes. Police believed that Scott's search for an escape from his unconventional home life and school bullies eventually led to Pamela's death. He and a friend had made plans to start a marijuana business, growing plants in Scott's closet. But they couldn't afford the expensive hydroponic lights that they needed. Scott applied for a credit card in one of his neighbor's names, waited for it to arrive, and then stole the card from the mailbox. It was a rural neighborhood and fairly easy to access someone's mailbox unnoticed. Scott used the stolen card to order the grow lights, but had them shipped to the Horowitz house to try to further cover his credit card fraud. The company was suspicious that the name and billing address on the credit card didn't match the shipping information. They asked to speak to the recipient or the cardholder. Scott tried to make the call himself, but they told him they wouldn't release the hold on the shipment. Panicking, he made a new plan. Police speculated that Scott went to the Horowitz house to try to threaten Pamela into cooperating with his scheme. When she refused, he killed her. They found a note in his room that read, knockout slash kidnap, question, keep captive to confirm pins, dirty work, dispose of evidence, cut up and bury. Even though Pamela's death wasn't related to Felix's, it still complicated the criminal proceedings against Susan. Mostly, it complicated Dan Horowitz's defense. There was a lot of overlap in the police and forensics teams who investigated both crime scenes. 
For example, the same medical examiner performed autopsies on both Felix and Pamela. Horowitz planned to call the examiner to the stand, but now had a potential conflict of interest because the same person had examined his murdered wife. On Monday, October 17, 2005, the judge declared a mistrial, removing Horowitz from the case and advising Susan to find a new attorney. Instead, Susan Polk decided to represent herself. When her new trial began on March 7, 2006, Susan faced a different district attorney, Paul Sequera. Unlike his predecessor, he didn't shy away from the dysfunctional nature of Susan and Felix's coupling. He admitted to Felix's faults, using them to demonstrate Susan's motive. He admitted that elements of their initial courtship were concerning, but that it was because of that unusual beginning that the relationship had such a tragic ending. And while the marriage looked happy on the outside, the Polk home was rife with discord. In Catherine Cryer's book on Susan Polk, Final Analysis, Sequera described Susan's disputatious nature, saying, wherever she went, there was a trail of conflict and confrontation. If there were problems in school, it was the teacher's fault. Susan also had a theory that Felix controlled the school. As time passed, Susan became more paranoid and began making things up. Susan had a similar reaction to Sequera's opening as she had to O'Connor's, but this time she didn't have Horowitz to hold her back. Nine times during the DA's statement, Susan objected to something he said. Defense attorneys cannot typically object during opening statements because it is only a preview and summation of the case the jury is about to hear. There was no official presentation of evidence or testimony. Whether she realized it or not, her constant out-of-place protest to Sequera's words only made the jury see the truth in his statements about her penchant for squabbles. She objected so many times, the judge threatened to remove her from the courtroom. Three of the biggest figures in the trial were the Polk sons, 23-year-old Adam, 21-year-old Eli, and 19-year-old Gabriel. Adam and Gabriel both believed that their mother killed their father as a result of her increasingly paranoid delusions. They would both testify for the prosecution. In addition, the brothers had filed a lawsuit against Susan for Felix's wrongful death. Her legal proceedings had dragged on for three and a half years. They worried that if they didn't sue her for a portion of the estate, legal fees would wipe out any chance of an inheritance or future college tuition. Eli had refused to join the lawsuit, believing Susan had acted only in self-defense. He staunchly agreed with her assessment of Felix as a controlling puppet master, alleging that his father had been regularly drugging and hypnotizing the whole family for years. Both Adam and Gabriel deny this ever happened, citing Susan as the source of this fantasy. When Gabriel took the stand in the first week of the proceedings, it was an emotional moment for Susan. She hadn't seen or spoken to her youngest child since the night of Felix's murder. The last thing he'd said to her was, you killed him. In their time apart, he'd grown up so much, she hardly recognized him at first. She could barely make eye contact as she listened to him describe what she was like as a mother, explaining things like, 
she'd allowed him to skip school because she believed the school administrators were out to get him, purposefully giving him bad grades. He told the jury that she started talking to him about different ways she might kill Felix all the time, every day. Her heart broke when he called her totally delusional. When it was Susan's turn to cross-examine her son, she had to stop after a few questions to regain her composure. For such a long time, all she'd wanted was to talk to Gabriel. The irony of the situation was overwhelming. She'd asked him to describe different events in his childhood, hoping that he'd back up her claims of spousal abuse. But Gabriel's retelling of events rarely matched her recollection, drawing even more emotional responses from her. She kept him on the stand for five days. Some jurors felt that she was more preoccupied with forcing her son to admit she was a good mother than proving she was innocent of murder. But another juror found himself sympathetic, believing that she stretched out the questioning so she could spend more time with her estranged son. As the trial continued, Susan employed much of the same defense strategy that Horowitz had planned on using, showing Susan as a battered woman. However, some of her strongest arguments were inevitably undermined by a stroke of delusion. She alleged that the police had exaggerated the scene, moving some furniture in the pool house and pouring water on Felix's body to make the blood pool look bigger. She accused them of failing to explore any other witnesses besides herself. But then she shifted gears in her questioning and brought up a letter she sent the week before Felix's death that detailed his involvement with the CIA, Mossad, and his failure to warn anyone about the 9-11 attacks. Why hadn't the police contacted the FBI to verify her claims? To Susan, this was crucial information that demonstrated the complacency of the police department. To the jury, it was a window into her deeply flawed mindset. Susan also disagreed with the autopsy report, which stated that Felix had bled to death after being stabbed 27 times. She called that number a gross over-exaggeration meant to aid the prosecution's case, and she had a witness to prove it. Dr. John Cooper was a self-employed forensic pathologist who had conducted nearly 2,000 autopsies, about 300 of which were homicides. He told the jury that he only testified in cases he truly believed in. Cooper alleged that Felix's murder wasn't a murder at all. Instead, he argued that Felix's untreated heart disease had led to his death, saying, I believe Dr. Polk died of a coronary event while assaulting his wife. The stab wounds were not enough for death without the coronary disease. He could have gotten medical attention and survived these injuries. District Attorney Paul Sequera didn't know how to react to this testimony at first. He saw that it had clearly impacted some members of the jury. He went after Cooper's credibility, asking him details about his work habits and experience. But as it would turn out, he wouldn't have to work that hard to undermine Susan's expert witness. When the judge required Cooper to turn over all notes and reports that he had for Felix's death, the doctor was resistant. Then, he reported the next morning that the paperwork had disappeared. Perhaps he had left it on the airplane, or the hotel maid had thrown it away. He had a backup in his office in Texas, 
but no one was immediately available to send a copy. And by the following Monday, Cooper skipped town. He sent the judge an email saying that an emergency had called him back home. He eventually returned to the stand a few weeks later, with some of his paperwork on Felix's autopsy, but not all of it. To the jury, he'd lost most of his credibility. Finally, in a fitting cap to her defense, Susan Polk called herself to the witness stand. For 17 hours over the course of several days, she took the jury point by point through her whole life, feeling like this was finally the moment for her to tell her story. She described how Felix had turned her into his lifelong research project, keeping her under his control with drugs and hypnotism. But inevitably, she undermined herself. For example, she described a phone call she had overheard between Felix and, she assumed, his CIA handler. She claims they discussed the murder of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone by Dan White, but this was before the crime took place. She described herself as a loyal patriot and Felix as a traitor to his country because of his failure to warn the government about 9-11. Then she acted out the night of his death for the jury, explaining how her ex-husband had come after her and how she had desperately fought him off. By the end of her testimony, one juror told journalist Carol Pogash that he found Susan's versions of events so incredible that he felt like jumping up from his chair and shouting, shut up. But he held his tongue, refusing to give her any grounds for another mistrial. He couldn't imagine another captive jury being subjected to Susan's ramblings. On July 13, 2006, testimony concluded and they began their deliberations. Now the jury had to decide what was the truth and what was a delusion. After four days of discussions, the jury returned with their verdict. Reporters filled nearly every chair in the courtroom, waiting for the ending of the story they'd been following for months. They found Susan guilty of murder in the second degree. She was sentenced to 16 years to life for Felix's death. Adam and Gabriel were present for the verdict and sentencing. It was justice, but it wouldn't bring back their father. It didn't lessen the sting of losing both their parents in one night. Susan immediately appealed her verdict, agreeing to hire a new lawyer to represent her. But so far, she has not been granted a new trial. At the time of this recording, Susan remains in Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla and will be eligible for parole in 2020. DA Paul Sequera will attend her hearing, as is his custom, and make a statement to the parole board. He said to journalist Carol Pogash after the verdict, Felix took advantage of her. He stole her innocence and brought her into a world she didn't want to be a part of. But that did not give her a license to kill. In her twisted way, she created a huge fabrication, and she felt entitled to murder.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Female Criminals is written by Abigail Cannon and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 